Welcome back to How I Position That, the product marketing mini-series on the Product Marketing Experts podcast. Last episode of the series today, sad but exciting given the caliber of today's guest. We thought what better way to end the series than to talk to positioning mastermind April Dunford. Now for today's episode, this interview is going to be a bit different than the others. If you've been listening along, I really dug into some of the core questions about positioning with product marketing leaders from top brands. But today with April, what I really wanted to dig into is some follow-up questions I've had and heard others have regarding her book, Obviously Awesome. So if you've been listening along on the mini series, you've heard April's book mentioned a bunch of times. So I'm hoping you've ordered it and you've read it and this interview will be really helpful for you. If you haven't ordered it, don't be a fool. You gotta get this book. I used it recently to revamp our positioning strategy at Privy and I can tell you it really works. Before we play the interview, I wanted to say thank you to everyone who helped create this mini series. Marcus and Alex for welcoming me to participate, as well as the production team at Sharebird, Jolisha, Katie, and Sarabi. Sharebird is the peer mentoring platform for product marketers. It's the place to discover on-demand resources to help you with product marketing. And if you have any feedback on our episodes, things you liked, things you wanna hear more, anything else, please email podcasts at sharebird.com. All right, without further ado, let's go. All right, welcome back. This is the last episode of the mini series, and I'm really pleased to have a very special guest. Can't think of a better way to wrap up the series than talking to April Dunford, author of Obviously Awesome, the modern day guide to positioning. April, welcome. Hey, it's good to be here. I'm the closer. Yeah. <laughs> They're the closer. This is this, and this only got set up. This got set up on a LinkedIn comment where Marcus was introducing the series, and then you were like, "Wait a minute, I'd love to be on this and, and close it out." And I was like, "I was sheepishly like, oh, Marcus did tell me that like two weeks ago, and I forgot to." But it was perfect, and it was like perfect publicly. You yeah, I was like, "How come it. I'm not invited to your positioning party?" Yeah. <laughs> Probably because I'm just intimidated to talk to you after after going what? through all this. I mean, I've read your book, I've used your framework, but it is a pleasure I'm to have you. I'm not intimidating person. Nobody should be. No, not at all. I'm but, Canadian. But... I'm like we're <laughs> you're just we're genetically not intimidating. <laughs> That's right. All right, April. So I want to start sort of at the top. You define this very clearly in your book, and your book has been referenced probably about twelve times in this mini series. It's only been five <laughs> episodes. So if anyone's listening has not bought the book yet, it's time to buy the book. This is the episode where you finally do it. Well, let's start at the top. How do you define positioning? Well, yeah. So when I started doing this work, I found that positioning was really misunderstood. And so every time I was talking to people about positioning, they'd be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We know what you mean. It's like messaging. And I'm like, no, <laughs> it's not the same thing as messaging. Or they'd say, yeah, yeah, yeah. We know what you're talking about. It's like brand positioning. And I'm like, Ooh, no man, there's branding and there's positioning. And those two things are different. And you're putting them together like that doesn't make them a new thing. And so I have I kind of worked on a definition, but my definition is sort of clunky. I wish I had a nicer one, but here's my definition. My definition of positioning is that positioning defines how your product is uniquely qualified to be a leader at providing some kind of value that a well-defined set of customers cares a lot about. 
Now it's clunky because positioning is composed of a bunch of separate pieces and we have to define those pieces separately and then bring them together. So part of it is knowing exactly who your competitors are, understanding how you're different, understanding what unique differentiated value you can deliver for your customers. And oh, by the way, what customer are we talking about here? And then the last bit is what market is it that you intend to win? Because you do this thing better for these people better than any anybody else. And so positioning kind of encompasses all of that. The things that we get positioning confused with, like messaging and branding and a tagline and all this other mm -hmm. stuff, in my opinion, you can't do any of that stuff until you have positioning defined first. I can't figure out what my brand should be until I know, well, who's the brand for and what is it I'm trying to communicate? I don't know what my messaging is until I deeply understand my differentiated values. But positioning is kind of this fundamental set of inputs that we need to have defined before we can do pretty much anything in marketing and sales, in my opinion. Yeah, I love the analogy in the book. I've actually used it numerous times about the violinist. I'm forgetting his name, but I had it memorized when I Joshua gave a presentation. Bell. <laughs> Joshua Bell. And I had it memorized. And I had a photo of him on my deck that I presented to our management team about two months ago when I did oh. a revamp of our positioning using your framework in your book. And I love that analogy of Joshua Bell, who they basically, I think it was the Washington Post, had placed yeah. him in a subway. He's this award-winning violinist that sells out concert halls and they put him in a a subway and just sort of playing violin and the results were amazing where he got like $30 in donations. He's playing for hours and thousands of people walk by yeah. and no one knows who he is, right? And so people are giving him some money, donating, you know, he gets some change or whatever. Some guy, I think even called the cops on him because it was too loud. <laughs> there was and the, you think about there was the lady position. that ran the shoe shine stand. And so yes. Washington Post went and interviewed people afterwards and, they, and there was the lady running the shoe shine stand. They went up to her and they're like, hey, like you're here every day. Did you notice anything different? about the street musician that was playing in here today. And she says, oh, yes, I did. He was so loud. I was going to call the cops. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and just think about that. I mean, this is someone that yeah. sells out for probably, I don't even know what, hundreds of dollars probably right. to go listen to him speak. And that's positioning. And I also love when you, the simplest version of the, of the way you boil it down is it's context setting. It's setting right. the right context for someone coming in and how they're going to perceive your product. I love that too. So I think that's great. Yeah, so, so that my example next... is a great one. And then it's a bit like here, I've got this thing. Like if we think about Joshua Bell playing the violin, I got a world-class product, like a killer mm -hmm. product. But if I take that product and I park it out in front of the subway beside the garbage can... <laughs> You know, even a world-class product can fail if it's put in the wrong context. Exactly. And so my next question is, who should actually own product mm -hmm. positioning at your company? So anyone listening, a product marketer, usually it's product marketers that listen to the podcast, who should own positioning at their company? Yeah. So I get this question a lot, like particularly for product marketers, because positioning is kind of a key product marketing function, or it's seen as a key product marketing function. And if we don't have people with a product marketing title, it's often seen as either marketing or product management. It's usually one of the two. It fits in there. But here's how this works in reality. 
So think about it this way. Like I'll give you an example. So the very first product I worked on where we repositioned it, we thought we had this thing that was like an alternative to Microsoft Access. Do you remember that? The Access was like this database that ran on PCs, but it wasn't really a database because mm-hmm. it didn't do SQL, mm-hmm. but it was this thing and it ran on And we thought we're an access killer. And so what we are is we're like Microsoft Access, really easy to install and stuff, except it had SQL. So you could do like real database stuff with it. And so Mm -hmm. we thought this was going to be killer and we launched it and it was a total flop. But what we did discover in the launching of this thing was three or four people that bought it were using it for this whole other thing. And what they were using it for was an embeddable database for mobile devices. Really, really different. (laughs) And so Mm -hmm. I discovered this little bit of insight and I'm like the junior marketing gal. Like I've been there five minutes, right? I just graduated (laughs) from engineering. I don't know nothing, but I did all these customer interviews and I discovered this pattern, right? So I bring it back to the executive team and I'm like, hey, so, you know, good news, bad news, right? Like the bad news is nobody's using our stuff. 99% of the people (laughs) aren't using this database and they think it's terrible. But the good news is there's the handful of outliners, liars, and they're using it for this other thing. And so we had a group discussion. Well, maybe we could reposition this thing. So maybe it's not an access killer, you know, desktop productivity software. Maybe Mm -hmm. what it is, is an embeddable database for mobile devices. Now let's just sit with that for a second. Let's say that's the choice we got to make. Can product marketing do that? Make that decision and just say, yeah, we're not that thing anymore with this other thing. Like think (laughs) about it. Like the pricing is different. The go-to-market is different. Like we'd have Mm -hmm. to have sales reps to sell it. And the other thing we were selling it for a hundred bucks off the website. If it's going to be an embeddable database for mobile devices, well, I got to sell hundreds of them at a time and I need a direct sales force to do that. My pricing structure is all wrong. And yeah, the product is okay at that, but there's probably some different things we'd want to put on the roadmap. And do I, junior marketer, fresh out of school, sitting in my cube, am I going to say, yeah, you know, just ring up the CEO and say, hey, John, just letting you know, we're changing this thing. <laughs> no, right? Obviously not. Yeah. So, But what did happen was I brought that insight to the table. And what we had was an executive team discussion about, do we want to give it a shot? Should we do the repositioning and then we'll take a run at it and see if it works or not? And in the end, we did decide to do that. It was wildly successful. We ended up getting acquired and then the thing went on to hundreds of millions of revenue. Like it was, the thing is still around today. It's 25 (laughs) years later, they're still selling that thing. And so, but it kind of illustrates this thing of who owns it. I think that product marketing is a very good candidate to be the steward of positioning. So once we have the positioning figured out, it's got to manifest in lots of different ways in the marketing that we do, in the sales that we do, in our product roadmap. And somebody needs to kind of be the steward or the guardian of that positioning. And somebody needs to own like, when do we check in on this thing? Because our markets aren't static and our competitive landscape isn't static. So we're going to need to check in on this thing. So ownership is a bit of a fuzzy concept when it comes to positioning. If we want to shift positioning, I think that's an executive team decision and the CEO needs to be involved. And so does the VP sales and so does the head of product. And so I think if you want to shift positioning, that's a team effort. We got to get everybody together and we're going to work on it together. But once we've got it, then who owns being the steward of it? Like who is the person that is the expert in making sure that we're actually executing on that positioning properly? I think that's product 
marketing. And if you don't have product marketing as a role, then somebody's doing the product marketing stuff. And whoever mm -hmm. that is, whether it's marketing or product, needs to be the steward of it. So in a lot of the companies I worked at, I was the vice president of marketing. If we were a smaller startup, I might not have a product marketer on my team. So I would mm -hmm. be playing that role. And I would have the standing every six month call on the calendar with the executive team. We're going to do the positioning check-in. And six months from now, we're going to check in and we're going to say, hey, has anything changed in our competitive landscape? Have significant things changed in our product capabilities that might impact the way we talk about value? Has anything changed with our customer base? If not, then we're good and you know, see you in six months. Mm -hmm. If so, then hey, maybe we need to back up and we need to run this positioning thing again to make sure that the positioning is still good for the situation that we're in right now. So it's a long-winded answer, but <laughs> so I believe that somebody needs to be the steward of positioning. And I think that's product marketing's job. But unfortunately, product marketing does not get to just do positioning in a vacuum mm -hmm. on their own and make the decision <laughs> and, and just inform the rest of the company like, hey, we're not a database anymore. We're a business intelligence tool. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, that would be nice. Uh, <laughs> a product marketer can dream. No, but that, so first of all, so much that I want to unpack with what you just said, both on like the maintenance side. And let's get into that in a second, because that's yeah. 100. As you said before, we want to like break down operationalizing positioning. But let's start with the ownership stewardship breakdown. That's beautifully put. To, <laughs> the only way I can say is that like, that makes so much Thank sense you. to me. I know there are people <laughs> listening right now to this podcast, shaking their head saying, oh, Stuart, like that makes sense. Now, here's a follow-up question I have to that. If there are the stewards of it and you've been in this position, you've mm -hmm. identified from those customer interviews, these really valuable insights that led to hundreds of millions in revenue. Nice brag, by the way, that's, yep, that's yep, pretty thanks. incredible. But how do you take that to the leadership team and how do you get them to buy in on this positioning? I mean, I think especially yeah. now it's challenging because you have a lot of CEOs and product leaders and others who maybe have haven't been around the block multiple times and understood the power of the right positioning, especially as a young product marketer, or you did this as a young marketer, you sold this to the team and said, we have to make this change in our strategy. How do you do that? Yeah. So I got a lot of experience in this because, so that was my very first job, right? I'm a junior, I'm a nobody. Mm -hmm. And in that case, and this is almost universally true, right? Coming with a bunch of customer information that says, Hey, we say we're this and we do this. But if I look at our happiest customers, there's something else going on here. Mm. <laughs> and being mm -hmm. the person that shows up and just says that, right? I'm not saying the positioning's wrong. I'm not saying we're not doing it right or whatever. I'm just saying we position it this way. But when I look at our happiest customers, that ain't what's going on. And so yeah. even just bringing that to the executive team is often hugely useful. But, you know, I'll tell you the story of me. So I did that thing. And then we ended up getting acquired. And then I end up being the VP, like when I'm still really junior, I shouldn't be the VP, but they made me the VP. That's fine. So I'm the VP. And then I left there and I go to the next company. So the next company I go in, we're pretty small. I got a VP title, but I'm still really junior, right? I got a couple of people working for me. And I suspect that the positioning on this thing is not good. And so I sit down and I have a conversation with the CEO about it. The CEO is like, no, it's great. It works. It's good. It's all good. And I'm like, hmm, if I look at what's happening in marketing, it doesn't seem good. Like we don't seem to get the response we should get from the marketing stuff we're running. So I got a suspicion that maybe this isn't working. Now, in this case, we had a sales team. So what I did was I went and hung out with sales because I'm like, well, what do I know? Right. All I know is what I see on the marketing side of things, but maybe it works great once we get it in a sales situation. So I spent a few weeks sitting in on sales calls and 
at this particular company, we had inside reps and outside reps. So I'd sit in with the inside reps and listen to first calls. And then I'd go with a couple of the account managers out on actual sales calls. And you could see it. You could see this positioning not working. Like you get customer comes in, reps in, right? Rep makes the whole pitch like, okay, this is the thing. And this is what we got. And it's amazing. And let me show mm-hmm. you a demo. And the customer's like, so you're like Salesforce. And they're like, no, God, no, <laughs> no, <laughs> we're not a CRM at all. And they're like, oh, oh yeah. So the rep is steamrolling along pitching and get to the end of the pitch. And they're like, so pitch it to me again. Like, what is it? This thing, <laughs> you can just see this confusion. And so yeah. the way I would, if I could hang out with sales and point that out to the salespeople, then what I could do is I could get the vice president of sales buy-in on this. I'd say like, do you get that a lot that we get compared to competitors that aren't even competitors? Like, does that happen a lot? How many times do you got to do this pitch before people sort of get what we're doing? Do you see this or you'd see this thing like they'd say, yeah, I think I get what your value is. I just don't get why anybody would pay for it. Like, do you get that a lot? And so I could point out the stuff that I would see that I would call clues that the positioning's not working. And I just point that out to the head of sales and I just keep bringing it back. I'm like, look, we did this call and you know, we're halfway through and they still think we're Salesforce. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't know if this positioning's working for us. And so eventually if it wasn't good, I'd see it in the sales meetings. And if I was seeing it in the sales meeting, the VP sales cares about that. So I point it out to the VP sales and get the VP sales thinking, maybe this positioning isn't perfect. I'm not saying mm-hmm. it's wrong, but maybe it's not perfect. And then I would repeat the process over in product and sometimes in customer success. So I go over to product and be like, okay, you guys are tracking all this for competitors, but I just spent three weeks over in sales. And I'll tell you, we never see those three and we keep seeing this other thing. Mm-hmm. So what do you think that says? Are we actually positioning this thing in a way that's making sense to customers? And again, mm-hmm. if I could get product kind of thinking that way, and then same thing in customer success, if they're doing follow-on sales or expansion selling, I'd be in there going, everyone's trying to expand with this, but we're saying this and these things don't seem to line up. Don't you think that's funny? And so Mm -hmm. if I could kind of go around and convince myself that I could see the symptoms of this all over, then I go to the CEO. So usually if I was brand new VP marketing, I'd spend a couple months doing this. And then I go back to the CEO and I'd say, all right, so look, I'm not saying the positioning's bad and I'm not saying it's, you know, I'm not saying it's bad, but I'm seeing some signs that maybe we should have a look at it. I think we should sit down as a group and have a look at it. And if it's good, then what we're going to get to when we do this positioning workshop, we'll get to the end and it'll be the same. But I think we should validate it because I feel like maybe some stuff has happened in the market that's changing it. And you know what the CEO says? CEO says, well, what does Doug think over in sales? <laughs> <laughs> and I'd say, well, I don't know, man, let's call Doug. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's find out. I have no idea. Right. And I'm yeah. like, I don't know. Let's call Doug. So then we this get Doug genius. on the phone. This is a, this is a, like, this is a bottoms be, up approach. This yeah, is a bottoms up like, approach. I've been to, thinking yeah. about this for a while. You're right. Like people are comparing us to stuff and whatever. And I'm like, you know yeah. what? I think Janet over in product, I think she thinks the same thing. Call her. See what she says. So we get Janet on the phone. She'd be like, yeah, you know what? It's probably a good idea for us to look at it. So that would get me buy-in, not to change it, but to yeah. look at it. 
it. So that's step one. So first you got to get your ducks in a row and say, this is worth spending a few days getting the team together to look at it. We're not saying we're going to change it. We're just going to look at it. So that's step one. So we get everybody together. We're going to get the gang together to look at it. The next thing is if we get the gang together to look at it, we better have a structured way of doing it. Because if we don't, what's going to happen is I get the gang together to look at it. CEO stands up and says, all right, why does everybody love our stuff? I know why. It's this reason. Prove me wrong. <laughs> and it'll turn into a battle of opinions, right? Exactly. So, and then the head of sales will say, nope, tried that in a sales call. doesn't work. I'll tell you what sells this. And he'll pull out whatever worked in the last sales call he was in, right? Like mm-hmm. this worked on, yep. you know, it's worked with all state. It'll work with everybody. Yeah. And so you don't want that, right? What you want is some kind of a structure that as much as possible takes the opinions out of it. So we need to get the gang together because everybody's got sales sees one thing, product sees something else, marketing needs something see something else. Your CEO probably used to sell, but hasn't sold in a year. And he's living in whatever the sales situation was a year or so ago. I need to get all these people together because I need to have them all bought into this thing at the end of it so that we can all go execute on it. So let's get everybody together. But now I got to have a structured approach and the structured approach has got to start with facts and build from there. Otherwise it's going to be a battle of opinions. And so my methodology, which is laid out in the book is my attempt to have a structured way of actually saying, okay, let's start here and say, look, who do we got to beat to win a deal? If we can all agree on that, then we can say, okay, what have we got that's different? How does that translate to value for customers? Which customers care about that? Therefore, what's the market we intend to win? And we can build on it and it takes the opinions for the most part out of it. So in my world, this is the only way practically, like operationally, I could make this work. So one is I had to get buy-in, particularly from sales, but from all the other parts of the organization that, yeah, we should look at it. Then I could convince the CEO that, yeah, we should look at it. And then I could get the gang together. But once I got the gang together, it can't be a battle of opinions. So I got to come with my methodology. And then ideally we got a facilitator and we're going to, and we're going to work our way through a bunch of steps that doesn't turn into just, I think this, and I think that. So that's how I think Mm -hmm. it works. Do you think it's easier now? You've been doing positioning for, as you said, 25 years. Do you think it's easier now because we have more access to customers in different ways, like call recordings, screen recordings, all that kind of information, data from product. Do you think it's easier now to get the positioning right because we have all this data? Or do you actually think it's more difficult because there's so much data and data meaning conversations, sales commerce, everything right across the board? Do you think it's easier or harder now? I think it's a little bit of both. We have more data than ever, but less insight than ever as a result, right? So this is hard. So I think that in some ways, like call recordings, I think are fantastic. Mm -hmm. Call recordings has really changed my job a lot. So being able to actually listen in on sales calls without having to be in the sales call live is pretty great. Although I have had situations where I'm in the sales call live and a customer says something and you get the opportunity to sort of lean in and say, hey, why are you asking that? And a lot of neat stuff that I've done has come from me leaning in and saying, why do you say that? Where does that come Mm -hmm. from? (laughs) Which you can't do if you're just Mm -hmm. doing the call recording, but even just the call recording is amazing. But here's the problem. Like sometimes the data lies to us. So I'll give you an example of the first company that I worked at. If I had just looked at the data, 
So the situation was we were thinking about Canon, this product, because it was a dud and it wasn't selling very much. And so we had only sold like 200 copies of it. And I was the new kid, right? So the CEO came to me and said, look, we're going to can this thing. We're going to end the life it. And I want you to call like a hundred of these 200 customers and see how mad they're going to be when we turn it off. And so I did all these calls. So I wasn't out looking for a new positioning. I was out trying to figure out where was anybody going to be mad when we shut this thing off. And so Mm -hmm. I, did these calls. And so I got on it and I was like, Hey, I'm calling from Wacom and we sold you this thing. And they'd say, no, I don't have that. And I'm like, yeah, you do. I got a spreadsheet here and it says you bought it on the 27th of January. And they're like, oh, that thing. Yeah. Oh yeah. We used it once and we didn't do anything else with it. And I said, Mm -hmm. oh, okay. So I'll put you down in the don't care if I shut it off column. Right. And so I did a hundred calls and 92 of those people didn't care if I shut it off. So if I'm just mm. looking at the numbers and I didn't have a conversation with those people, if I just surveyed them, like how disappointed would you be if this product went away? You know, that product mm-hmm. market fit survey question, like 92% yeah. would have said, kill it. But yeah. it was the eight that cared that mattered. And those mm-hmm. eight were doing something I never could have surveyed. Like I, <laughs> like there's no way I would have had a question on my survey saying, were you thinking about using this as an embeddable database for mobile devices? <laughs> We had no idea, right? And it was only because I had them on the phone and was able to probe around. So the first time I had one that said, oh gosh, I love your stuff. I kind of wrote them off as a nut job. I was like, oh, really? Weirdo. (laughs) (laughs) Like, oh yeah, what you doing with it? And he says, oh, I wrote this thing and I give it to all my people and we put it on these ruggedized mobile devices because we're out in the field doing this thing. And I'm like, this is some weird one-off thing, man. Nobody needs this. So I took half-ass notes on that and was like, yeah, yeah, whatever. And then I did another 20 calls where they were like, don't care, don't care. And then I did another call and the guy's like, oh, I love your thing or whatever. And I'm like, oh, another one of these. And I'm like, so what are you doing with it? And he said, well, we're putting it on these laptops and before we couldn't do this thing and people had to come back to the office to do it but now we can put this thing on a laptop and do it there and i'm like oh hmm. mobile devices funny <laughs> and then i get the third one and sometimes if i just looked at the data it would have said look nobody wants this thing and we would have just canned it but this qualitative stuff of being able to have a back and forth with a customer and say so why yeah. why and how and where did that go and whatever i might not have seen the pattern there had yeah. i not had the conversations So I don't know. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes the data just isn't enough. And so, yeah, we got more data than we've ever had, but it lies to us when we look at it in aggregate. Sometimes we need some of this qualitative stuff to really understand what's happening. Well, I talk about this tool a lot, Gong. I don't know if this is the call recording tool that you... Yeah. I mean, I love Gong because it's a little bit of both because you can go and you can actually search for terms. You can search for competitors. You can search for features. You can search for value statements, anything you want with keywords. And the transcript's pretty good. You get a pretty good sense of it. But then you can also just zoom in and listen to that snippet and listen to what they said before, what they said after. Was it the sales rep that said it? Was it the customer that said it? That to me is sort of like the perfect number one tool I would think of for product marketer thinking about positioning, messaging, owning that and doing positioning experiment, whatever it is they're doing or going through your framework. That's like the number one tool that I would probably lean in on and say, that's a tool you need because you kind of get both. Yeah. And the stuff I do, like when I'm working with clients and I'm doing prep stuff before we go in, I generally ask them to send me a bunch of gone calls. So I'm like, send me a few calls that you think are good calls. Now send me some calls that you think are bad calls and let's listen to those and see what the difference is. <laughs> and, and we kind of start there. But I think listening, like, again, there's nothing like a sales call, right? Like there's nothing like watching how a customer that doesn't really know too much about your stuff gets from, I don't really know that much. I'm qualified, but 
adjust to, holy cow, this stuff's amazing. I got to buy it. Like, what's that journey look like? And can we figure out what's going on in their heads when they're going through that? That's where all the good stuff is happening right there. So another, I can ask a million follow-up <laughs> questions on that, but I'm going to try to cover a few other areas. I know our audience is going to be really interested in hearing from you. I'm going to quote you for a second. You were quoted as saying personas are bullshit and that <laughs> they're not the right thing to be using for positioning. Could you explain, obviously intended audience and a positioning strategy is super important. If it's not personas, what do you use? And, and what is your beef actually with personas? Let's start there. Right. So I don't actually think personas are 100% bullshit, but I do think that a solid 95% of the persona work that I see companies do, particularly startups, is useless. It's not operationally interesting or useful. And so I think, I don't even know where it comes from. It's like, I feel sometimes these marketing teams just feel like it's a checkbox. Like we got to have these five personas. So let's do personas (laughs) for everybody on a purchase team. And then they fill them out and they do them and then they never use them for anything. And I'm like, why are we even doing this stuff? Like, do we get a prize for doing this? Like, why are we doing it? So that's one thing. The second thing is my background is really B2B. And so I haven't done a lot of consumer stuff. So when you go to marketing school, which I did, like I studied engineering, but later I went to marketing school. And one of the things that really struck me in marketing school was how much B2C we talked about in marketing school. Like it was always consumer stuff. Like we were always trying to sell tooth paste and socks and stuff. And so when they talked about doing a segmentation in marketing school, the segmentation kind of looked like personas. So it was like this toothpaste is for men under the age of 25, you make this much money and do whatever. And so there was this confusion between segmentation and personas. And that really struck me because what I saw happening in B2B was people were trying to take that same segmentation and then use that in B2B, which almost never worked. So the idea was in B2B, if I'm thinking about what are the segments I need to go after, people would be looking at, instead of demographic information, they'd be looking at firmographic information. So the size of the company and what industry they're in and maybe how much revenue they make and whatever. And all the good segmentation I had ever done was more like a horizontal segmentation. It was, we're going after companies that have this kind of a business model that maybe use these two or three software programs that have this particular problem and are trying to get this thing done. And it actually didn't matter what industry they were in or how big they were, like they had to be bigger than a certain size maybe, but that was it. And then you've got this issue. So that's the first thing. Like, I think people confuse like in B2B segment, I need to actually segment the market around Mm -hmm. who cares a lot about my value proposition. And when I say who, I mean like what kind of companies, not the people inside the companies, what kind of companies, like what are the characteristics of a company that makes them a really good fit for my differentiated value? That really matters because I want my marketing and sales efforts focused on those kind of companies. Then I have the issue of inside a business, if I sell software to businesses, Typically inside a business, there's more than one person concerned with doing a deal. Like, so if your deal is of any size at all, there's a purchasing team or there's people that care. So IT might get involved and might have a veto decision on this deal. The person doing the actual evaluation of the software, they might not be the budget owner. So they got to go to their boss and their boss is the actual buyer that signs the check and gets you paid. There might be three or four people on the buy team. The stat on this is if you're selling B2B software, typically there's five people involved in that purchase. Mm -hmm. Now, then we get to personas. 
So now in its purest form, I've got personas that kind of give me an idea about how that particular person ticks, right? What do they care about? What are they trying to do? What's important to them? What isn't important to them? What are their pain points? All that kind of stuff. But if I'm thinking about this, when I'm selling software into a company, let's say there's these five constituents I've got convinced, typically there is a person in the account that is your champion. Meaning that's the person that's making the deal get done. And that person's the person that's on the sales call with you. That's the person that's going around and convincing everybody else. That's the person that goes to the boss and makes the recommendation. And the boss says, yes, generally. And that person matters a lot particularly in our marketing. Most of our marketing is focused on that champion in the account. In fact, if you look at the data on this, which there's this great book called The Challenger Customer written by these guys, the corporate executive board. But if you want to dig through the data on this, the data says that, yes, in fact, there are on average five people involved in the deal. But -hmm. what really matters is getting the champion sold. And if you Mm -hmm. can sell the champion, then your job is to arm the champion to sell everybody else. It actually isn't your job to sell everybody else. And so what I see is people come and they've got these persona work on 17 different personas. And then they try to appeal to all 17 on their web page. <laughs> it's like, yeah. no. Or there's a separate page for each. Yeah. The only person or a web page for each one. And yeah. then they're going to have yeah. marketing materials for each one. And they got a pitch deck for each one. And it's like, yeah. people, you've only got one product. It's one product. And the only person that really matters in your deal is the champion. Now you might have the wrong champion and, you know, we could have a big conversation about how do you make sure you got the right champion, but you need to figure out who the champion is. You need to deeply concern yourself with getting the champion sold. And then once the champion sold, you need to ask yourself the question, okay, what do I need to do to help the champion sell everybody else? Now in B2C, I don't know how this works, man. I don't do B2C. So if you're in B2C, I think what you've got is different personas for different segments because people are your segments and that's fine. And then maybe personas are not bullshit if you go over there. (laughs) But But in my opinion, if you don't totally have your champion nailed over B2B, you shouldn't be worried about persona number two or persona number three. Like exactly. you need to completely get number one nailed. And then you need to understand what does that person need to go sell everybody else? Not you go sell everybody else. How do you arm them to sell everybody else? So we are coming up on time soon. I do have, <laughs> so I have this little cheesy lightning round questions that I want to ask you that's oh, super God, simple. Oh but... I hate the lightning round. It's so much. So stress. let's skip it. Let's skip it. Cause I actually have one other bigger question I want to ask you when we sure. probably need the full five minutes here that we have to answer it. So in the book, step number eight, finding a market frame of reference. And I want to talk about that for a second, because I think there's mm. a common misconception here and I'd love your take on this. So there's these three different positioning strategies that you lay out in the book. The first one, head to head, think Pepsi and Coke. Uh, the second one is yeah. big fish, small pond, which I think is like what my opinion seems like 90% of the companies or startups that are, if you're a founder listening to this, 92%, yes, 92% of companies that actually get big enough to go public, this is what they do. Okay. So that's probably what they should be doing. And then there's a third, which is creating a new game, right? Yeah. And I think one of the most common traps that I see founders are falling into today is thinking about category creation and yeah. trying to create a new market so they can lead in that market. And I'm just really interested in your take. How do you approach that conversation with founders? And even like category creation versus creating a new market, are those separate things? I'd love to hear your take on all of that. Yeah, so here's what I think. A lot of this stuff, I think, 
The root problem is fundraising. So here's how it works. If you're the CEO of a startup and you want to go raise money from a venture capitalist, you got to come in with a big story, right? Your story's got to be, look, the whole industry is in upheaval and the world is changing in big ways. And these big changes are going to result in winners and losers. And we look at it this way, and this is how we're going to be a winner in this new market that's going to exist five years from now, 10 years from now. And that's why you should write us a check. Like that is fundamentally what a good pitch deck for a VC looks like. And so mm -hmm. what you're selling is division and the far thing and oh my gosh, and there's all this disruption and everything's going to change. And then there's going to be this new market's going to emerge. And because we're doing what we're doing now, we're going to emerge as the champions of that new market. And mm -hmm. that is a very compelling pitch for a VC. Now, here's where the problem comes from. Now you go to sell what you actually have, which isn't that, <laughs> to customers. <laughs> yeah. And customers are like, I don't get what it is. Like, I don't get what this thing is. And in order yeah. for people to make sense of what your thing is, the easiest way to do that is to compare it to something they already know and say, well, it's like this, except it's for these kind of people. And so that's why it's much easier to not create a new category than it is to do a segmentation thing. But let me back up for a second. So there's three styles of positioning. You can either go head to head. Head to head is where you say, okay, there is an established market like cola. And I say, I'm cola. And if you wake up tomorrow and launch a startup and say, what we are is cola, and it's not qualified in any way, you're essentially declaring war on Coke. You're like, mm -hmm. <laughs> like my intention is to beat Coke. <laughs> Because you haven't qualified, you haven't anything else. And that sounds nuts. And it is nuts because no one wins doing that. Absolutely no one. Why would I ever pick you instead of Cola? Like there's no mm -hmm. reason to pick you, right? So mm -hmm. nobody wins. The only reason you want to do that is if the category is emerging. So if I woke up tomorrow and said, you know what I am? I'm smart glasses. And that's different. Like I kind of know, I know what smart glasses are. I don't really know who the leader in smart glasses is though, do I? So maybe it's you. And if you got mm -hmm. a lot of venture capital and you want to take a run at that, maybe you're going to be the leader in that. So that's the only reason you would want to position that way. Categories exist in the minds of customers. So I don't have to explain what smart glasses are. We know what they are. And all I got to do is prove to you why I'm the best choice out of all the other ones out there, none of which really have too much market mind share yet. Much more common what you get is you say, look, I'm going to take the existing market category and I'm going to sub-segment it out. So I'll go in and say, look, I'm not cola. I'm cola for dogs. That's different, man. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, that now I know when to pick you. I pick you mm -hmm. when I want my dog to enjoy the refreshing brown fizzy beverage that tastes like bones, <laughs> right? That makes sense yeah. to me. And if you look at, again, well over 90% of the successful startups that we know position like this, because this is the easiest way to do it. I come in and I say, look, like if I'm Salesforce, right? How did Salesforce position themselves? They didn't come out and say, oh, we're creating a new category of SaaS software, blah, blah, blah. That's not how they position themselves. I know because I was competing against them at the time. They come out and they said, look, we're a CRM for SMBs. Now at the time when they launched, CRM was big, complicated, horrible software, and you couldn't adopt that if you didn't have an IT department. So they came in and said, well, we're CRM for SMBs. Mm -hmm. You don't need an IT department. Why? Because there's no software. We're going to host it for you. You don't have to do anything. It's a niche play in a big existing market. Like there was a big competitor in that market that was 2 billion revenue at the time. They just came right in and said, niche play. Big fish, small pond. And we couldn't sell down there because we needed an IT department to deploy our stuff. <laughs> 
And so that's how they started later on, you know, when they're big, they can create a category. The last one is this category creation one, which everybody's hot on right now, because, you know, again, the VCs in particular love this thing, right? They think that they look at all the big successful companies out there right now, like Salesforce and say, well, look, they created this category of SaaS software and whatever. So if you want to get big, you should do what they're doing. But what they miss out on is like, what were those companies actually doing when they were small? They weren't doing that. They weren't category mm-hmm. creators and they were small. Gainsight wasn't a category creator until they were 300 million revenue. If you survived mm-hmm. to 300 million, then yes, go nuts. Extend the borders of your category, turn it into something else. But that's the thing you get to do when you're giant. There are very few examples of category creators that started out as category creators and then survived. The reason that is, is because category creators tend to lose the moment their category emerges. So take any software that you know and love right now. Like this is the reason why we don't use Ask Jeeves. We use Google. This is the reason we're not using MySpace. We're using Facebook. It is very hard to go through the effort and pain and time of creating a category. The minute it emerges, you're going to have a thousand fast followers. All of a sudden we're in style one now. I got a thousand fast followers that are like, yeah, yeah, me too, set better. Me too, except we learn from all your mistakes. Me too, except I got fresh VC and your VCs have been in there for 10 years now and they're looking for an exit. So it's actually really hard to create a category and then survive to win the category that you've created. There's very, very few examples of it. And so if you look at like, for example, you know, I did this little jog through the numbers recently just because people keep asking me this question. But if you look at all the software companies that have gone IPO in the last five years, 92% of them at IPO, so, you know, 100 million revenue or whatever, at IPO are positioning themselves as niche plays in existing categories. At IPO, how many of us make it to IPO? Like almost none of us. <laughs> yeah. So at IPO, 92% of them. And then you look at the 8% that are not, and not all of those were category creators from the beginning either. So some of them went to this category creation thing right around IPO time. So it's actually a very, very small number of companies that have successfully decided we're going to create a new category. We're now going to teach the market what that category is all about. We're going to survive to dominate that market category and then go on to have great things happen. It's actually super rare. So in my book, I talk about Eloqua and they're one of the only examples that I could find when I was looking for an example of this. And, you know, it was touch and go there for a while with them too, right? Because when the category of marketing automation did emerge, I mean, there was immediately Marketo in there, eventually HubSpot got in there. So it was a bit of a dogfight for a while there and it could have gone any way. But Eloqua is one of the few that I could point at that like, yes, there was not a thing called marketing automation there before until they said it existed and they actually survived to make it happen. I would also say that big fish, small pond is a, I mean, you did say this like a category creation is really difficult, but it's also a lot easier when you're a smaller team, you have your kind of go-to-market team put together to have the strategy of big fish, small pond, because you can set your sights on competitors, what segment of that competitors that you can steal from. I mean, like we're, again, we've gone through, we're using this strategy ourselves right now. And I find it incredibly okay. accurate. And it, Why would you not do this? Like the only time yeah. you do category creation is if nothing else is possible. Yeah. Like it's literally your last resort. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like if you couldn't 
couldn't use anything. You simply cannot position it in any other way. Yeah. Okay. We're going to have to go through it and do it. Yeah. But most of the time it's the thing you don't want to do because it's so much easier to say, Hey, look, we got solutions like this that are really good for these people. We got solutions like this that are really good for these people. And Hey, you know what? People like you, there's this big gap and that's what we fill. We're here for this. And that's so much easier than saying, Hey, you know what I got? I got a thing. It's a flu flummer. And you're like, what the frick is a flu? <laughs> and I, yeah, I'm like, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell yeah. you. <laughs> you know, in the beginning, there were flus and there were flummers, and then we got them together. The flu flummer, and uh, you know, and, and everyone's yeah. scratching their head going, dude, I don't even know what this is. Yeah, so, I know. I don't know. So I think right now this category creation thing is really trendy, but mm-hmm. I think it's mm-hmm. actually really bad advice for small startups. I think it's so much easier to do big fish, small pond than yeah. it is to try to say, oh, we're going to make up some new thing and then we're yeah. going to sell the planet on this problem because people must not know they have the problem because if they did know they have the problem, then there would exist a category of solutions to solve it, right? So first I got to sell the problem. Then I got to sell you on the solution. Then I got to convince you that my solution is the best of all choices there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and guaranteed the minute you start having a little bit of success doing that, then there's going to be tons and tons of me too competitors all over you. And, you know, first mover, like we say, what we've learned in Silicon Valley is first mover doesn't generally win this fight. Yeah. I think what I promise not to do is to tweet out that what you just said, which is category creation should be your last resort. But I think <laughs> I think more people need to hear that. And I'm glad you're saying it. And not to throw anyone on the bus, but I know personas are bullshit that was tweeted out by someone we know. And, and that's where I got that little quote from. But it's um, Twitter, man. We only have so many characters. That's right. And we're all stuck inside and we got to get out there and share these little clickbait like uh, headlines. But that's really good to hear. I'm glad we actually made the time to go through that and hear your take on it, because I think it makes total sense to me. And from my experience, both being in a company that was trying to create a category and then following the other strategy now, which is Big Fish, Small Pond. So if you haven't gotten, the, if you're listening and you still haven't gotten the book, obviously awesome. You need to get it. All of this is in there. And then I, what I would do is I would save this podcast, go read the book and then come back and re-listen to it because I think you just added so much more. I think you laid the foundation for the sequel book. I, that's that's my the follow-up book. book. Oh God. I think, and I think it needs to be book, it's really hard and I'm not sure there's ever going to be a <laughs> Well, I think, I think what you could write about is operationalizing positioning. I mean, yeah. there's so much goodies in this conversation today that I think would be incredibly helpful as a follow-up book. But hey, I'm not going to pitch you on it now. Hopefully people took, got some of that from, from this podcast and from the other parts of this mini series, some of the other interviews. So but this has been incredibly helpful. One of the best conversations I've had on positioning, probably the best. I know I'll be re-listening to this episode and I'm not blowing smoke. I will be re-listening to this because I've listened to almost all of your podcast interviews um, <laughs> for future. I'll put it in my swipe file to come back and listen to it because this is really helpful. I mean, this is a really great blueprint for operationalizing product positioning. And I really appreciate you taking the time to, to go through it with me today. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. That's so nice for you to say. And I'm glad that I'm here. Awesome. All right. Well, if you don't have the book, obviously awesome. Go check it out on Amazon. April, thank you so much again for taking the time today. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome. All right. Hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. You probably can hear in my voice how excited I was to talk to April. 
that's a wrap on the miniseries. Thanks again to Marcus and the Sherbert team for letting me hijack the pod for a few weeks. I really hope everyone enjoyed it and learned a few things, ready to tackle positioning for your company, or at least you feel like you have some great resources to guide you through the process. In particular, obviously awesome. April's book is phenomenal. Can't recommend it enough. If you want to connect with me, find me on Twitter at underscore Daniel J. Murphy. Otherwise, hope to be back on the pod at some point soon. All right, see you.